allowing me to come. Uh, it usually turns out to be at this time of the year, which is the Sunday just before the calendar spring starts. And perhaps some of the snow will melt by then, or you will get a lot more after that. It's a pleasure to be with you, and uh, I'm so thankful that uh, I was asked to address you this morning with the next section in the letter of Paul to the Galatians. It's a funny title I gave it, Spring Cleaning for the New Arrival. And of course, it's partially because of that's what you do at this time of the year. You clean up. Uh, I noticed that you were a little late with that when you do it in, in May. But uh, you may start doing that already in your home. What I want to talk about is the spring cleaning we need to do with our minds, with our life, with our practices, with our reflections. Because that's exactly what Paul had to do after his uh, training that we will find out more about in a moment. Uh, and what he addresses here in this letter to the Galatians is something that is somewhat unusual in the Pauline letters, and that is we find out something more about him as a person, about the growth that he went through, the changes in his life, the uh, um, revolutionary change that took place when uh, he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Uh, I want to bring that in the context of what you probably heard last Sunday when Dick preached on the first section in this first chapter. And now coming into the second sec sec section, we find that Paul has to defend himself because in the first section he was rather outspoken and uh, rejected those who uh, had invited the believers to come back to the practices of Pharisaical Juda Judaism with the keeping of all kinds of laws and regulations from the Torah and other texts that developed around that source of uh, the Hebrew understanding, the Jewish Old Testament understanding of what it means to be a believer. Now, what Paul comes to is something very, very different, and he has to defend himself. And he defends himself precisely because uh, there is a distinction to be made between religion, as people are religious human beings, and the truth. For the last year, and both the summer semester and the fall semester, I've taught a course that is called Religion 301 for Pepperdine University in their program in Lausanne. It's a required course. They've had a course on New Testament. They've had a course on the Old Testament. And then the third year is a course on religion, and it has a double purpose. One is to introduce all kinds of other religions, and the other is to point out the distinction of the Bible's teaching to these other religions. And I've, the thrust of my presentation is basically that religion is something that we all have as human beings. It comes, the word comes from the Latin root, religere, which means to attach yourself, to relate yourself, to something bigger than yourself. It's a human privilege, it's also a human problem that we're not functioning on the basis of mere instinctual responses to the here and now, and then go on forgetting what we've just done. A human being, because we have a mind, thinks into the past from memory and tries to figure out how we got to this place. 
who are our parents, who are our grandparents. Why do we speak English? Why do we live here, etc.? We link ourselves up with something that is bigger than the immediate moment. And of course, we also have the same minds by which we project into the future. What shall we do? How are we, where are we going for lunch, etc.? And that's a typical, I mean, it's a necessary and a wonderful phenomenon of being a human being other that, rather than a plant or an animal. An animal does not have memory in the same way. It doesn't play with memory. And it doesn't have the projecting mind either. Out of this phenomenon that the human being links himself to something bigger than himself, larger than themselves, comes the religious experience, the religious attachment. And you have people attaching themselves to many things that seem to be bigger. For instance, the traditions that have been handed down. When people say, we've always done it this way, and therefore it's expected of you, you continue that. You tie yourself into a network of traditions. <clears throat> Others tie themselves to uh, history, in a perfectly secular sense, as Hegel and Marx and Marxism talks about, the human experience is part of an ongoing history in which you are the wheels of a vehicle that moves forward inevitably, dialectically, scientifically, unavoidably. You're just part of the unrolling of time in space. Or you have the attachment to a text, as you have in several religions. You have it in Judaism and Christianity, the Bible. You have it in the Quran, in Islam. And you attach yourself to that. You say to yourself, I have instructions that come from outside to me of how I should look at life. Or you lose your search for an attachment to something specific. Those are the ones I've just described and say, all this thinking is useless. I just am, and I'm part of a oneness. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you. I'm part of a oneness which needs to be uh, embraced and followed. Those are the religions mostly found in East Asia, where you lose yourself in order to become one of the flow of things. Uh, that's what uh, Solomon describes in the book of Ecclesiastes except for the very last ending verses where he says, but we look at things differently because of the grace and mercy of God. Otherwise, he says, all is vanity because nothing ever changes. We are just part of a rolling forward of something and part of this oneness, which of course means that you cannot distinguish between life and death. It's all part of the same or between good and evil. There are no such distinctions. I once heard a Cambridge theologian say that God himself is above such petty distinctions as good and evil. Well, that is indeed what you find in Buddhism as the highest experience of nirvana. And so people are religious and they attach themselves to something bigger than themselves. And in the Judaizing, Judaizing uh, group uh, mentality that Paul writes about in the first part of Galatians, these people have attached themselves to human traditions. Human traditions that Jesus talks about. When you tithe cumin and forget to pay for, your benefit, for the benefit of your parents. When you go th create a whole structure of behavioral patterns with everybody else, 
and you say, that is what we do because we do it. That is religion. That is not the faith and trust in the living God of the Bible. Those habits and practices, this embrace of just history moving forward, this following a fellowship because everybody does it, is not what the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about something very specific of a God who created a distinct universe with real history, where we're linked to the mind of God through the text that God has left us once we were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, where God has given the prophets to correct our behavior and not just to make it do and to go along per, per continuing it from generation to generation, but rather clarifying through the word of the prophets what we should do and asking the question, how did we think we get away with what we do without that link to the text of God's word? That's how Christ came, as Paul talks about it here, that Christ appeared to him and explained things to him. And I'll get to that in a moment. And that's what the Holy Spirit is given so that we would not be left to ourselves or to the traditions of men or to the resignation to history or to just sort of accepting things as they come down the pipe. What Paul distinguishes here in Galatians is between those traditionalists and the lively reality of being a child of God instructed by Christ, finding in Christ that grace of God manifest in the flesh that both by his teaching and by his life gives us the orientation, the encouragement, the present power to do that which is right and good for ourselves, for the love of God, and for the love of our neighbor. So Paul is not advocating religion, and yet that's the, ex that's the accusation that was raised against him. In fact, what the people were accusing him of when he said, you don't have to be circumcised to be a child of God. You don't have to clothe yourself in a certain way to be a child of God. What he was criticized for is that somehow he had perverted the knowledge of God and turned the gospel into something that uh, we in our modern time would call gospel light, like Coke light something that is without weight and without external manifestation. And we shall see that that's not what Paul is doing. But that was the accusation. And so he defends himself against that and says, what I preach, and he says it strongly, let me tell you now, in contrast to what you accuse me of, I am now trying to win the approval, of, am I now trying to win the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please men if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brethren, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, what Paul refers to here is what is described in the book of Acts at three different places. Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26, and that is that he, being trained in the tradition of the Pharisees, highly scholared, and in, with earnestness pursuing that which he has been taught, on the way to Damascus is all of a sudden uh, faced with a word and the light and the powerful presence 
of the living God. When people say they wish they had a Damascus experience in order to see the reality of the existence of God and his love for us, what they mean is something often quite different, and that is they want something random, powerful, just sort of shattering experience to themselves so that they would have the conviction of what is true. What Paul encourages us in Acts 9, in Acts 22 and Acts 26, is to be far more critical. The reason Paul could have that experience and understand what it was is precisely because he had so well trained to become a Pharisee. He had so well studied the Old Testament, looking forward for the Redeemer, looking forward for the blessing that would come to all nations in the Abrahamic covenant through the house of Israel, through the house of Judah, through the throne, the seat of David's family, etc. He knew exactly what to look forward to and what he had heard in his own time about this Jesus as a revolutionary, as a troublemaker, as one who contested some of the Pharisaic uh, practices was something that turned him off. But he was looking for the real Messiah. And when he came, and as one of the three passages in Acts tells us, spoke to Paul in the Hebrew language, communicating real content, it was more than just a happening, an experience, a bright light. It was a message. Why are you persecuting me? I am the Messiah. I am Jesus. The very one you persecute, I am the living one. It is this that convinced Paul, not a desire to be religious. It is not that he came up with something else. It is something that he encountered the living God in the person of Jesus Christ as the Lord. Jesus himself had contradicted some of the Pharisaic traditions. In, Ma in Mark uh, 7, he talks about the fact that they had neglected the word of God and replaced it with human traditions. In Matthew 15, he scolds the disciples for not understanding the parables when in fact they are accounts or stories or illustrations of deep themes that are there in the scriptures that are instructive. In uh, Mark 7, we read, you have uh, a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to keep the testimonies, uh, uh, the traditions of men. In Matthew 15, are you still so dull? In Matthew 8, 7, 8, we read, you let go of God and hold on to the traditions of men. And that is what Paul had pursued. But with the desire to actually know this God who had given us the Old Testament scriptures and the promise of the Messiah, put it down there and hope I won't kick it over. <coughs> And so what Paul writes here is that he didn't receive the new message, new to the Galatians, from men, but it was a direct revelation from God himself. You've heard of my previous life, he says in verse 13, in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous in the tradition of my father's but when God, who set me apart from birth, as he had set Jeremiah apart from his birth, 
and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not consult any man. My gospel is not of human imagination. It is not the expression of a religion. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Now, when you read the several passages in Acts and this one here about Paul going to, on the, after bowing to Christ, being blinded and taken to Damascus, and there when he receives his sight back, uh, does not go to Jerusalem. When you read these different accounts, there is a time period there that's mentioned which is very important. And though I cannot figure out myself as to exactly how the various passages fit together in terms of chronology of which period follows which, what is important is that Paul did then not seek the counsel of men, but rather went into a study period, probably with the Lord himself in Arabia. Arabia is not Saudi Arabia. It's all the area of what we call Syria down into the Sinai, um, which he, uh, where, where Paul spent time, three years, to think through, to corroborate what he knew as a Pharisee, what he knew from the church's teaching that he had persecuted, and what he knew from the living Christ whom he had encountered on the road to Damascus. He spent the time because it is important to not just be religious, to not just follow the traditions, to not just repeat what everybody else does, or to not resign oneself to some kind of fate or destiny which necessarily just sort of rolls you along from birth to death. It is important to figure out what you believe and why. It is important to discern what is right and good against that which is inhuman, wrong, and evil. And it seems to me that Paul used these three years precisely to clarify his understanding. There much correction needed to go through. As he says, he followed the traditions of the fathers, and he had to re-examine that in light of the text of the Old Testament with which he was familiar. There was no New Testament. The person of Jesus of whom he had heard much and what the witness to Stephen's death, where he was a witness, is reported in the, act, uh, in the eighth chapter of the book of Acts. He had to bring it all together to clarify in his own mind why was he a follower of the Lord? Why, how does that relate to the promises of the Old Testament and the fulfillment in Christ? How does that relate to the teaching of the prophets about all of life and how must I now live in light of an understanding that is not formed by the traditions of men, but from understanding by God, by his Holy Spirit, by the work of the, uh, by the, work of the prophets themselves. What you find in Paul then is not the advocacy of a religion and then another one, not the contrast, but rather a totally different perspective. What Paul has recognized is that we don't have a set of prescriptions uh, in the sense of traditions, but rather we have the living Christ. The grace of God is not sort of an occasional act of kindness, but rather it is the coming of the long-promised, long-expected Messiah in flesh and blood. It is that the word has become flesh and dwelt amongst us. 
It is that in Christ we find the manifestation of God's character, of his teaching, of his practices, of his personhood and personality. This is something that is very important for all of us because we like to say we have this relationship with Christ, we believe in the Lord, we expect eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. We know that we're not alone because the Lord's always with us. But when you actually look at this grace of God manifest in Jesus Christ, you find much more than that. You find the fulfillment of what the Old Testament talked about in Leviticus 19, about being kind to the alien, of applying the same law to everyone, of being hospitable to people, of explaining what we believe and why, of using fair measures and honest wages of not robbing a man of his coat overnight in, uh, in one way or another because the night is cold. It is that which the Old Testament taught. It is not the traditions about tithing, cumin, and other things. It is how to be a righteous person. In fact, when Jesus says, let your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, he uses the same word that in Leviticus 19 is used for correct measures fair wages, precise quantities. We must not cheat on each other. We must not forget that we are one human race, separated by ideas, but fundamentally one in the fact that we all have the image of God, and we all need to bow before God and all receive redemption in order to have the hope of eternal life. The Pharisees separated out people because they looked differently or they behaved differently or they didn't repeat the words correctly. What Paul talks about is precisely that if we are in Christ, then we understand something that's true to the universe as such and it needs to be shared, it needs to be explained, it needs to be lived out. It isn't what others approve of, it is what is right and correct and true and honest in fulfillment of the word that God has given us. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, when he said he didn't go to consult the others, it was because he was, of course, a person to be afraid of. He was known as a persecutor of the church, and so who would welcome him? He's a dangerous person. He used to try to destroy the Christians and the church in the early days. And so he went through his training process with the Lord for those three years before he went up to Jerusalem. And there he only met with two of the disciples, not with all of them. That happened somewhat later, as he describes in Acts 26. But initially, he carefully stretched out to, in order to give proof of the fact that what he was teaching was, in fact, what the Bible teaches ourselves to us ourselves, what Jesus himself taught. And that is that we don't follow the traditions of men, but we bow before the living God. We don't follow certain patterns merely because it gives an impression of orderliness or repetition or nothing shocking, but rather we follow that which God has told us to do, to be his children, to love our neighbors, ourselves, to pay fair wages, to be truthful and discerning. Now that becomes very important for all of life, not just in relationship to our salvation. That kind of discernment 
is something that we need in the day-by-day -day challenges of whom you hire, whom you con uh, commit and trust in your to and commit and trust in relationships, whom you vote for. It all has to be passed through the grid of what is true, what is wise, what is consistent with the reality that God has made and the reality that God has given us an explanation for. A reality of an ordered universe, but now fragmented and, and damaged and broken. Of promises made that are not necessarily kept because trust is not established, etc. We need to look at life much more critically, much more discerningly than just simply following the religion or conviction in one area or another without the discernment that is essential in order to do what is right and just. We don't live in a good world. We don't live in a friendly world. We know that more and more as we grow into this time period of, our, uh, of uh, the world and as we become more aware, thanks to various ways that news come into our ways, we don't live in an easy world or a, or a uh, harmonious world. There's much to be done, much concern and pity to be expressed, much compassion, much we must understand what are the underlying problems in our society in order to help them, uh, help people to overcome them. We have to recognize what we have done, what kind of a world we leave for the next generation. Have we been wise and truthful? Have we been negligent and careless? Have we been selfish and not caring for what follows? And all these things, it seems to me, bring us back to uh, that concern that Paul expressed in the immediacy of his situation. I knew, I thought I knew what was right, and I pursued that even to the destruction of the church because I thought they were wrong. I thought the Pharisaic traditionalism was the way to go. And I've come to see that I had to examine all that. I had to spring clean my mind. I had to spring clean my practices in order to come to the knowledge of God as the living one, not as the framework for traditions. I had to come to the understand the grace of God in the person of Christ as the manifestation of God's mind God's mind is not manifest in the events that happen or in our Christian tradition. If you look at what Christianity has produced over the last hundred years, it isn't all glorious. In the name of Christianity, all kinds of all awful things have been happening. And we all know the tragedy and evil of slavery. That was also done in the name of Christianity. Or the neglect of our children or the... Uh, separation of roles for men and women and all kinds of things that have been happening in the name of Christianity. In our modern present day, we explain as Christian that with the allow, allowing the market to decide what is a fair wage and whom to provide health care for, etc., etc., in the name of Christianity often. It is time that we examine all those things as Paul did with a seriousness of wishing to know what is right and true and good for God, for ourselves, and for the world in which we live. That's why Paul later on then write the letters and is, agree <coughs> is approved of by, by the disciples in Jerusalem. But that wasn't so to begin with. 
He had to carefully lay out what he believes and prove that what he believes actually came from the Lord. It is not from man, but rather from God. It is what scripture teaches us, but scripture through, the, through its own text rather than through the filter of religion. Uh, no wonder that the people in the area in Jerusalem and surrounding areas and so forth were at first totally astonished. But as Paul later on to the Romans also said, after all this, Christ did not come in a, cor in a corner somewhere, but was public. He, he spoke, he lived, he taught, and his instruction shaped uh, that which then became the church. And it needs to continue to so shape us as the church, for indeed, we are sinners, for indeed, we do not do what the text tells us to do. We settle too quickly for our conclusions. We are too religious in our mindset, in a sense that if we settle this, then we no longer have to think about it. Paul is a constant encouragement to us to review what we believe and how we live in honor of God and in help to each other. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for what you did in Paul's life, a man so fascinated with being right according to the traditions of men, so full of integrity with something that is so uh, distorted, as many uh, in our own day and age are so convinced of the rightness of their cause. We pray, O oh Heavenly Father, that you would give us a desire to know wisdom and to do what is good and right and being will be willing to uh, review our angles of things, our perspective on things, so that we would serve you rather than find security in the repetitions and the affirmation by men. We ask, Heavenly Father, for your spirit to instruct us, to shake us up where we need to remove the cobwebs of our mind or the practices of our life. Help us, O oh Father, to serve you better and to be indeed those who fulfill somewhat 